it easily could have Disney could have easily closed up shop. Oh yeah. And walked away, but Roy insisted that his brother's vision was going to get built, and it weren't for Roy. And there were other great people involved, but it weren't for Roy saying this is going to be built. It wouldn't. I don't think it would have got built, and I think that's why Roy, his name, uh, should be just as tied to that resort as, as his brothers. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy course, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Welcome to the Dreamer's Moment. We talk to people who are in the arena, chasing their dreams. Today we are privileged to have Chad Emerson, author of Project Future, the inside story behind the creation of Disney World. And we'll also be talking about one of Chad's heroes, Roy Disney, and how Walt's older brother had to carry on the challenges of the Florida Project after Walt's untimely death. Chad, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Dean. I'm glad to be here. Well, thanks for coming. And uh, right from the get-go, I'm thinking to take on the research alone behind Project Future involved a lot of work trying to gather all the details behind the, the Florida land acquisition by the Walt Disney Company. So I'm guessing you already had a pretty big interest in Disney World before you started the project. When did you first become interested in Walt Disney? Well, when I was a... Uh... Early on, in the early 80s, my family, we took a trip down there when Epcot first opened. But when I got married in 1998, my wife and I, one of our first vacations was down to Walt Disney World. Hmm. She had never been. This is my only second trip. I didn't really remember it much since 1983 or 84. So went down there, just really fell in love. We didn't have kids at the time. just fell in love with just everything it stood for. So over the years, you know, I started to get involved with uh, different projects down there, had some when I was practicing law, just fortuitously had some depositions down there. Okay. And got to spend the evenings in the park. Next thing I know, I was writing for magazines and uh, books. And, you know, here we are uh, about, I guess, 14 years later. Um, it's been a great journey in a lot of ways. How many times do you figure you've been there? Oh, since 98, 99, probably 30 or 40 by now. I mean, maybe 50, yeah. It, it, for a while there, it, when you're doing uh, press stuff, it'll just be in pop in for a couple hours, stuff like that. So actual right. family vacations, you know, probably 15 or so, maybe once a year over that time. But actually trips there, I usually find myself there every three or four months. Oh, okay. Well, so you must get a season pass. 
Uh, well, nice thing about writing uh, for the magazine is typically when I'm there, it's for an event of some type. So uh, usually uh, your, your admission is part of the event. Oh, okay. Um, care to share like your favorite theme park or maybe your favorite attraction? Well, Epcot is my favorite theme park hands down. <laughs> it's just uh, I don't know. I don't know why, because I love them all. But there's something about when you walk in that front entrance of Epcot and you hear that mesmerizing music, and you know, if they just get rid of those tombstones, it would be all right. But uh, and you, and you see now the restored, glorious spaceship Earth without you know some character stuff on it and you just wander through there and there's light airy stuff there's fun stuff there's also some pretty serious stuff where it just really contemplates some of the theme american adventure or have just a a real loose non-contemplative time at uh nemo and the seas or Mm. something like that so that's i think that park has just about everything you could want wrapped up into a single park uh, no argument here. My favorite, I always say my favorite few minutes is when you get off the monorail at Epcot and you've mm-hmm. just kind of swung through the future world park and then you've, you're, you're hearing the music, you're walking up to Spaceship Earth. That, that definitely is the ideal moment for me. That is, uh, well, I think the monorail trip from the TTC to Epcot where you wind through the park and kind of get that preview as you uh, come back to the station, that's about as fun as it gets to be in terms of Disney. <laughs> yeah, agreed. I, I'm hoping someday when I retire, I can just be working on that monorail station right there. That'd be a great job. <laughs> um, until I had read Project Future, I guess I had the average understanding of how Walt was secretly buying up land in Central Florida for the Walt Disney World Resort. Um, how did you personally get interested in this project? I teach law school in Montgomery, Alabama, and one of my areas of research involved legal issues facing the amusement and leisure industry. Hmm. looked at a lot of different things, and one of the things I came across was improvement districts. And I was kind of a hybrid. I also teach property law and land planning and development. And I thought, well, improvement districts. And I started researching, and I saw that one of the, if not the most famous improvement district in the history of the country, uh, was the Reedy Creek Improvement District, mm, yep. which is basically the regulatory backbone of the Walt Disney World Resort. And as I was doing this research and writing this article, my wife and several others were looking it over and they said, you know, you take out this legalese, you take out you know, all this legal jargon and turn it into a book. This is some really amazing stories. So we published it as a law review. Florida State published it several years back, and then I transformed it and expanded it into the book, which is now known as Project Future, which you know, I, I don't hesitate to tell people. It is about the details of how, you, how they created the nuts and bolts of Disney World. There are a lot of great books about trivia and other things out there that I enjoy reading, but if you're if you're looking for a lighter experience, this is not necessarily one of those. We try to put this chock full of all the details, so when you come out of it, you're going to know the details. And you know, some people say it's too much detail, but I think there's a lot of people out there who who want to go to that next level, that next layer of depth. So it's been extremely um, well received, and we've been real pleased with the reviews and the sales. I think what what it did for me was it, it just made me realize as a as an entrepreneur myself and somebody who'd like to chase a dream how, why you shouldn't give up and and boy you talk about challenges and 
and I'll ask a few questions about that. But today, it seems it hardly seems that the Walt Disney World Resort could be located anywhere other than Central Florida. But that wasn't the only place that they were looking into for for an eastern market. What other locations were being researched, and why didn't they pan out? They uh, early on they realized Disneyland was a huge success, but that so much of its attendance was coming from people west of the Mississippi. And so Walt and his team realized we needed to tap into the eastern market to maximize the number of guests. And so they started looking at a lot of different areas as far west as St. Louis. Walt obviously had a strong connection to the state of Missouri, growing up in Marceline and spending time in Kansas City. But they, that project fell apart. I looked at some projects up near where the World's Fair site was that they participated in, uh, as a lot of people know. But again, the same problem was it was cold during the winter, and it wasn't a, a great location. And finally, they really narrowed themselves down to the state of Florida. That was one of the few places in the eastern U.S. where they felt like it was warm enough year-round to operate an outdoor park. Within Florida, though, it was never a slam dunk that would be Orlando. In fact, early on, the Palm Beach area, and mm-hmm. Ocala, Florida, especially those two, were leaders out of the gate, if you want to say. Mm-hmm. And if it weren't for the fact, ultimately, Dean, that Interstate 4, which at the time did not exist in the, in the early 1960s, was built to connect I-75 and I-95, and then the Florida Turnpike was extended from I-95 to I-75, both of those literally, as people know now, crossed through Orlando, almost making an X. It's when Disney learned about those soon-to-be-constructed rows, X marked the spot in central Florida, and that spot was the Orlando area. Yeah. Uh, dealing with the complexities of, of, uh, of the, the kinds of land that they were looking at and and uh, the highways and, and, and what kind of funding would they get from the state, that just uh, kind of blew me away. Um, one thing that confused me uh, that um, I, I don't really understand was, weren't they um, in talks with the St. Louis location, but at the same time they were buying up land in Florida? Yeah, I think early on it was never an either-or. I think Walt was casting a wide net, for different ideas, and the St. Louis project actually came to him, whereas to a large degree, Project Future, they went to Florida and sought it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the St. Louis city fathers and civic officials came asking Walt, and the St. Louis project, Riverfront Square, was conceived of as a extremely large, but nevertheless entirely indoor multi-story, five or six stories, kind of like a huge Disney quest, if you will. Right. And uh, the idea was that that would be an opportunity to create some of these attractions in an indoor setting as part of the revitalization that were creating the Gateway Arch and the original Bush Stadium for the St. Louis Cardinals. So they were looking at that project. They were also looking at some of the smaller projects in Niagara, for example, at the mm-hmm. Tower and several other places. So I don't think Walt was saying at this point we're only going to do one, but I think with the World's Fair work, they soon realized that their capacity to do a whole bunch of different projects at once was going to be really straining the resources of the company and mm. continue to do films and TV and all that. And so that's when 
the St. Louis project really got the closest itself through for a variety of reasons. I think, based on my research, one of the reasons is that the Disney company realized it's going to be hard to build this and do the Florida project at the same time, and I think the Florida project soon became a priority. Okay. I can imagine, knowing, knowing what I do about Roy Disney, he must have been having um, sleepless nights during that time. Roy Disney, uh, when it's called Disney World, I've said before in some interviews and things like that, if we really wanted to be fair and true to uh, Disney World and what it represents, it should be called Walt and Roy Disney World <laughs> Because while Walt had the vision for it, when Walt passed in 1966, it easily could have, Disney could have easily closed up shop oh, yeah. and walked away, but Roy insisted that his brother's vision was going to get built, and it weren't for Roy. And there were other great people involved, but it weren't for Roy saying, this is going to be built. It wouldn't, I don't think it would have got built, and I think that's why Roy, his name uh, should be just as tied to that resort as, as his brother's. And, and he was really the one who suggested that it be named Walt Disney World. Am I right on that? Yeah, that's interesting. It was it was Disney World, and then just before opening, it was officially, in fact, Disney World for a while, there was one word like Disneyland, so it was a lowercase w following hmm. the Y in Disney, so it read Disney World just like Disneyland does. Hmm. And at the very last second, Roy said, you know, this is going to be named in, in honor of my brother, so thus the Walt Disney World hmm. uh, Resort was born. Yeah, yeah, he was an amazing fella and always in the background. Now, the term Project Future, um, I know that wasn't the only name they used in their secretive project, but that's where it ended up. Um, how did they end up with Project Future, and what were some of the other um, names? Yeah, I think this project had more code names than a CIA <laughs> it, it really was uh, chock full. It was funny, as I was doing the research in different archives, all these different terms came up, and you, know, you almost had to have a spreadsheet to keep up with what. But ultimately, they all meant the same thing. They used terms such as Disneyland East, the Florida Project, Project Florida, Project X, um, and Project Future. So all of those were used at different stages. I picked Project Future because, A, I think it was one of the less-known names, but, B, in 1965 in June, a lot of the key players, including Walt and Roy, got together at the Disney headquarters in California and held what was called the Project Future Seminar, which was a week-long event where they evaluated everything about operating this park from government to intellectual property to the engineering to whatever. All of it was put together. And I was going through some notes, and it was, there was a transcript, or at least a summary of, of the, uh, the week-long event, the meeting, and it was called the Project Future Seminar. I was like, Project Future, that sounds good. You know, I, I haven't seen that used before, and, and it's actually uh, very historically accurate. Mm-hmm. My, my, my sense has always been that, um, you know, just Walt's uh, vision of Epcot um, kind of tied into the name, but I've never known that for sure. Yeah, um, I think that might have something to do with it, but I also, the, what happened is uh, Project the future side of it, why they actually picked Project Future. Uh, I've heard some anecdotal stories. I didn't put this in the book because I couldn't really double source it, but a couple of people who were actually real involved then and who are alive now today, I was able to visit with them, said, uh, we just picked Project Future because it had a catchy name and we were looking to the future. 
Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, you know, sometimes the simple ways uh, <laughs> are the way to do it. So, and all of us can speculate, but it's usually something like that. That's right. <laughs> um, in the in the book, you explain why they had to take the approach they did and, and why it was secretive. And you know, I guess um, there's always been this part of me that wonders: uh, Did people find it ethical? And obviously, there were the legal challenges later, but. Why Why did Walt have to take that approach? And I'm assuming a lot of it had to do with their experiences in California. Yeah, the secrecy, I think, that Disney undertook with this project has often been misunderstood. Mm-hmm. I think some people uh, would like to view there being some nefarious purposes, that they were trying to hide all this, when in reality... What they're trying to do is make this project viable. Mm-hmm. Here's why. If their name had gotten out early on and people knew that Disney was compiling these 28,000 acres or so, the land prices would have been driven so high that they would have not been able to acquire really all that they felt that they needed. Right. And so, you know, nowadays, I think they acted like, you know, any company would want to act in terms of acquiring land. It was a strategic decision to... Uh, keep their name secret, and I will say this: one thing that was impressed in my research is while they definitely, you know, engaged in some sleight of hand sometimes, I never found any illegal activity or any other type of activity which would be considered you know, improper from a regulatory legal side. They just did their best, and they did an incredible good job of of keeping the media and the other interested gadflies off their trail until just the very end, and it got disclosed just literally a month or two before they were ready to disclose it themselves. And they were certainly vindicated in the end, and I think that's uh, where your book really does a great job of helping us understand what I think, like I said earlier, most people just have this, well, he did it kind of secretly and backhandedly, and, you know, was it really ethical? And by the end of it, I was like, my goodness, you know, we wouldn't have it if it wasn't for uh, for the steps that they took. That's right. I mean, if, if it had gotten out, when it really first started in, you know, 64, early 65, if their identity had gotten out, they very likely wouldn't have gone through with the process. I and mean, that's, that's what I've concluded. You know, I mean, people have different opinions, but I think if the land prices had been uh, prohibit- prohibitively high, they would either not build the project or it would have been a significantly smaller scale project, hmm. something along the lines of the Riverfront Square, which... You know, it would have been a great, great. I mean, I just imagine Walt creating this indoor thing. But, you know, it's a five-acre, five-story type project. And, you know, what makes Disney World so fantastic today is, in my opinion, is its vastness. Oh, yeah. It's just a, it's a, this blank canvas that it was. And if they had uh, been revealed early on, I think we would have lost that element of it. Oh, yeah. It's it's like, I know you said 27,000 acres. Is that right? Well, at some point, I think they got up over 28,000 at the peak of it. I mean, subsequently, they de-annexed property like Celebration and the Crossroad Shopping Center. So right now, it's at one of its lowest points in terms of overall acreage as mm-hmm. Disney has dispersed or disposed of some of the property or otherwise, you know, taken out of Reedy Creek. But I think at its peak, it got up either near or above 28,000. Okay. Acres. Okay. And, th- and that's like about 38 square miles or something like that? Well, you'd ask me to do a little math. About that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. I think it, it, was, it was probably up near there. 
Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the timeline and the turn of events in 1966 and, and uh, give people that sense you get from your book that this was this was not a one, two-year deal. I think it was, you said, 59 when really they started the research. And uh, then in 66, of course, the untimely death of Walt Disney. Uh, so that dealt the whole project a pretty serious blow. How do you think uh, Walt's untimely death impacted Project Future and especially the burden that that put on Roy? Yeah, I think Walt's passing, and not just passing, but passing as quickly as he did, probably in mid-1966, he knew something was wrong. He started to go to some of the doctors, and by the fall came around, he was feeling pretty bad. But still, you know, I don't, no one knew, or at least nothing I've seen, that it was a terminal illness. It wasn't until November, really, or October, where it became clear something serious was wrong. And so for him to pass away within just a month or two of being diagnosed, the challenge for them was that Walt was really painting this canvas, this this entire project in his mind as much as on paper. He was thinking about this throughout 1966. There were other projects, movies, TV going on, but you could just get a sense that this was monopolizing his mental you know, energies and just thought process. But a lot of that was not put on paper yet. Mm-hmm. So they almost, when they realized that he had a real serious illness, there was a rush to get the information out of his mind hmm. and put it on paper so that if he did pass, which unfortunately that happened, that at least they'd have a blueprint to follow of what he envisioned for these 27,000 acres. Mm. To a large degree, Marvin Davis and Roy and all these other folks really did a good job in doing that, but even at the end, he was, there's a story, he's looking at his, by all things, I could tell it's a true story, uh, he's looking at the ceiling of his room in the hospital and talking to his brother, and it's one of those kind of drop ceilings that's in grids or little squares, and he was and he's imagining Disney World on the ceiling and pointing to different parts of the ceiling and telling his brother this should be here and there and stuff. And so I think that's you know, one of the real unfortunate things that if he could have just you know lived another two years or so, I think the project would have been fundamentally different. Which for some people may not be good, but I think it might have had more of the component of a uh, a real working city mm-hmm. than it ultimately did. I, I completely, 100% disagree with the people who say that the idea that Epcot was was going to be a city was only a sham to convince the legislature. I Everything I've seen, everyone I've talked to who was contemporary, who was there, who literally walked the property of the wall at times during 1966, said that you know, that was his goal. He was close to guys like James Rouse and others. His goal was to create a real ideal city. That was the next logical step in his creative evolution. Mm-hmm. He just didn't live long enough to to do that. And that's just, if he would have lived to be 80 years old, I believe that got, would have been built. Yeah. Like he originally thought. That, that is actually probably one of the main premise of this podcast is that uh, uh, we believe that the the vision for the future that folks had back, like say at the the World's Fairs and of course, Walt's vision for Epcot, which was a real city with, as I understood it, about 20,000 or maybe more people living there. That's the uh, Epcot I wish we did see. And, of course, like you say, I love Epcot. It's my favorite park. 
But uh, for people who um, aren't aware of it, there's some great websites out there. I know it used to be called Waltopia. I don't know what it's called now, but it gives you all of these, um, uh, um, what's the word, the mock-ups or the drawings that they had for Epcot, and it's really fantastic. Yeah. Too bad we didn't see <laughs> see that. Yeah, it's um, you know it's one of those things where. I don't know. You know, I like Epcot like it is, so I don't know if I would have preferred it to be a working city. In some ways, it seems a little bit less interesting to go on a vacation, but at the same time, I'm really um, intrigued by Walt's idea of an ideal city, what he could have pulled off that uh, that to date really hasn't been pulled off. I mean, Celebration and other places are nice, but in terms of just what he can see, that could have been a real game-changer in American society. Do you think Roy himself was um, trying to, to go towards Walt's real vision for Epcot, or do you, or once Walt died, did everyone just say this wasn't practical and too expensive? No, I think, well, I mean, the tricky thing with Roy is, he said it's gonna, all along they're going to build Magic Kingdom first, and, and he made it very clear that Magic Kingdom is going to open almost within a week of Walt's passing in December 1966, a lot of Florida officials and other officials thought that that's the demise of the whole Florida project, whole project future. And Roy sent a lot of the lieutenants out there, a lot of the personnel in Florida out there to tell people, we are moving forward. And by early 1967, they were meeting with legislators and getting the legislation ready. But I think if, um, I think if Roy had lived past, I mean, he, he ironically passed within just a month or two of the Magic Kingdom opening, the Walt Disney World Resort premiering in October of 1971. If he had lived longer, you never know. I still think, though, even though he probably would have wanted to fulfill that vision, Roy was getting pretty uh, up there in years, and the fact that Walt wasn't there, I suspect we might have had something a little different than we do now. I think we might have had uh, maybe some experimental housing and things like that. But I don't think the Epcot, which Walt envisioned, was ever going to be built without Walt directing its building. Yeah. I think the thing, the the drawings that I've seen, the, the part about Epcot that looked so cool to me was how they um, did the traffic. So the, the bottom level was where, you know, you could still drive into Epcot, but then you would go up these levels and you'd see like the people movers at one level and maybe a, a faster moving, um, subway or, I mean, like a monorail above that. And, uh, so that, those drawings are great. Um, I think it's called, it, just for any of the listeners who are interested, I think it's called the original Epcot and I, it may even have dashes in there.com, but you should be able to find it doing a search of that or Waltopia. Yeah. Um, so um, I kind of want to um, finish uh, on your on your Project Future book by just kind of setting the stage here. Um, most of the book covers the um, all the complexities and legal issues surrounding Project Future and 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 of course the involvement of the Reedy Creek uh, Improvement District. So. Um, during those years when they were um, in in those talks and fighting some of those battles, how do you, do you think that Roy and, and the Walt Disney Company felt Walt's dream was slipping through the cracks? No, I don't. I think, I don't know, that's a good question. Um, I don't think slipping through the cracks. I think 
that all along Magic Kingdom was a means to an end for Walt. He was not into sequels a whole lot. He was into original things. He was willing to do the Magic Kingdom, which is you know, in some ways a sequel to Disneyland, because he knew from a business perspective that would draw the interest to Central Florida that would then allow his greater interest, Epcot, to have some extra level of viability. And so when when he passed, when, when Walt passed, I think it was basically all attention was, let's get this vacation resort open. At that point, honestly, the water parks and the additional theme parks, I don't, I don't really think Roy spent a lot of time thinking about those because it was such a mammoth effort, right? I mean, down to the morning of the grand opening, putting sod down at the Contemporary Resort. It was such a mammoth undertaking that, you know, sometimes when you're so focused on something, it's impossible to think about anything in the future. So I think that's what happened is it it opened. It was the first couple of weeks. It, was, it looked like it might have been a bomb, but then right. Thanksgiving it was uh, taking off. And, you know, not right around that time, Roy passed away, which, you know, losing Walt and then losing Roy after the opening, by then, you know, essentially the, the Disney brothers, which had guided this process, were both gone, and you had some great people, the Don Tatums and the other folks involved, you know, well-intending, but they weren't one of the Disney brothers, and they hadn't been through what Walt and Roy had been through, through the creative journey they'd been on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, and and uh, they went through a time I know after Roy's death where it was just really unclear as to how the that company was going to be led. Um, can you, from a personal level, it, um, uh, taking on a project like this and just the amount of work and detail detailed research you did must have been challenging. Were there any uh, huge obstacles that you ran into or challenges writing this book? Well, one of the challenges. And it turned out actually to be a hidden blessing was the Disney corporate archives in California used to be open to certain research projects. Right. And when I reached out to them, I had some, knew a lot of people at the company and had a lot of conversations about working with it, but it just became clearer and clearer that it was going to you know, moving heaven and earth to uh, to get access. So I said, "Is you know what? Maybe this is not a bad thing after all. Hmm. Maybe the fact that you know what's in their access, what's in their uh, archives, excuse me, the official archives, is what really Disney thinks is important. But what if I can go and use non-Disney archive materials and still tell the story hmm. and find it from a perspective which, not saying they were trying to hide anything, but they you know is not necessarily the perspective that they were sharing." Right. A large degree, it synced up, but to be able to go to University of Central Florida's archives, look at Buzz Price's papers, uh, meet with some of the people who are still alive, interview guys like Tom DeWolf and, and uh, Mr. Smith and others, and then go to the Al- uh, Alabama, I'm in Alabama, hmm. the Florida State Archives, and go and, and, you know, almost, you know, breathe in the dust for days at a time, being these, you know, old books and papers, and, and finding that once I found those materials, I was like, you know what, this story will be a more complete story because I'm using materials which uh, weren't necessary. Let me try. All right. All right. It's recording again, so I'll just cut out this initial stuff. Um, 
I got most of that last one, so I'll I'll just have to wing it. I can do some editing. I really wanted to cover your next book here, so let's see where should I start. Okay, I'll start right here. Um, and during the process of writing the book, can you re recall any high moments that you really treasure from the whole experience? Uh, some of the favorite moments were interviewing or just visiting with people like Buzz Price and Tom DeWolf and Governor Claude Kirk and Bob Foster, these folks who were alive, or obviously alive now when I was talking to them, but were alive in the mid-60s and lived through these events and could reflect from their own first-hand personal experience. It's one thing to read an archived document, and those are fascinating, I mean, documents which were written back then and in some ways probably more reliable because, you know, just like any of us, our memories over time, mm -hmm. you know, folks right. different things. But talking to these folks and say, oh, yeah, I remember when, you know, Walt and I walked into this room and I was like, I mean, that that humanizes it. And so the highlight was is no longer think of Walt as something on a film strip but as a real human being who was sitting there talking to these folks, directing traffic, directing ideas, and getting a glimpse into that world it was like taking a time machine back to the mid-60s, and I felt by talking to them, I better understood what Disney World was always intended to be. Mm -hmm. That was a great I, experience. I can imagine. I mean, to get these guys, uh, did you talk to them by phone uh, or in person? Some some by phone, and some I was fortunate to sit down in person. I, when Tom DeWolf, who was um, uh, an attorney uh, who Disney used, to help acquire some of the land. He still lives in Claremont, Florida, and through some folks I knew at Reedy Creek, they introduced us, and he invited me. I sat in his kitchen, at his kitchen table, with him and a recorder, and we just visited. Shoot, we must have been there for an hour, hour and a half, hmm. and just sitting there and visiting with Mr. DeWolf and learning all these things, and him saying, oh, yeah, I remember when we went over to there or first saw the... Dimitri Parcel, which made up a large chunk of Disney World, things like that, or, or met this. And then and this last June, June of 2010, went back and did a, a month-long series of talks, um, kind of a book mini-book tour there. And going to a lot of these groups, Rotary Clubs and things like that, I met a lot of people who came up and said, oh, yeah, my dad was on the original construction team, or, or my mom was uh, friends with the original this, or and meet all these people and realize that, Disney World, we sometimes crystallize into just the two or three or five or so famous people, the Fowlers and the uh, Potters and the Disneys and folks like that. But then to hear about the people who maybe were a layer or two below the surface, but without them, it would simply not have been built. Hmm. It. I didn't get a chance to validate, but it seemed like some of the names you mentioned in there I had read in like uh, some of the other books like How to Be Like Walt. And um, what I was always amazed was how some of these guys came in, into the position that they were with Disney World. Uh, just Walt had that keen sense of where somebody might be talented, moving people from one position to another. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm thinking some of the guys that you, you talked to were, were those people. Yeah, yeah. I, I talked to those folks, I mean, a variety of the folks, some of the, some of the gentlemen I mentioned. And as the funny thing I've learned is when I went back in June and spent a long time in Central Florida talking and sharing stories from, I was uh, 
of that Disney world itself, given a series of talks to probably 20 different groups and the public library and stuff, people that came up to me afterwards and had additional materials, I was like, wow, you know, mm-hmm. I could, I, the, the book would have been 500 pages if I knew all these people at the time, but, <laughs> you know, at some point you, you have to stop researching and start writing and stop writing and start publishing, so, you know, we did that, and I think, all in all, my goal was to write a book that was short enough in length that it was approachable, and you could read it on the flight down to Disney World or, or maybe on a long weekend but also had enough detail that people like myself who kind of like the History Channel or Discovery Channel, kind of the behind-the-scenes how it works, would have some anecdotes and other facts in there that you typically wouldn't find in a lot of the books about Disney World these days. Yeah, I thought it was a great read. And like you said, it's something that um, you can get through in a few days if you're an ambitious reader. And uh, so I would highly recommend it. And uh, this is a perfect segue into your next book, which is Four Decades of Magic, and as I saw, it's coming out on March 1st. Is that still the date? Well, no, actually, the good news is, I don't know when this podcast is going to be published, but the good news is that uh, today, which is February 9th, Mm -hmm. um, the book is now available online, effective literally today. When you you and I are talking, I was actually, I hit a button that says, published, and it's published now. You can go to createspace.com and look up Four Decades of Magic or go to i4publishing.com and and find the link. It'll be on amazon.com, which is where we sell most of our books, probably within a week or so. So uh, by this time next week, people should be able to go to amazon.com and buy Four Decades of Magic, which I wrote the introduction for that. I didn't actually, beyond the introduction, I, I was mainly the compiler. But what it is is a series of essays from from leading Disney podcasters and authors and bloggers and you just you just name it. Some of the just people really involved. A lot of readers would recognize or listeners would recognize. And I asked them, hey, for the 40th anniversary of Disney World, which is you know this October 2010. Um, I mean 2011. Here we are in 2011 now. And hmm. could you send me a you know, a, a four or five or six page essay reflecting on something in the last four years that really drew you to Disney. And I didn't know what to expect, and we got the most diverse set of essays. Some of them are, are comical, some of them are serious. I've, I've read this book now probably, you know, 15 times <laughs> in the process. And each time I've read these essays, whether it's, you know, Lou Mangiello's essay about. Uh, unbuilt uh, Disney resorts or some of Jim Corcus' essays or some of these other folks. I think every time I read something, I'm just like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Hmm. And uh, it's it's a great collection. These I'd like to take credit, but I, I really wrote very little. But the guys like Mike Scopa and Deb, uh, Coma, Deb Coma and stuff like that, just wrote Kevin Yee. I, I shouldn't even start naming them because... I'll leave out somebody. They just did an amazing job telling amazing stories and they're bite-sized stories. So you can read a couple, put the book down. And and I think, I personally um, think it's going to be a real great resource for Disney fans of all stripes. Hmm, I think that was a great idea. And I had no idea some of the other names behind it. So a big fan of uh, both Lou and uh, Jim. So that'll be fun to read. Um, it's been a real honor to have you on our second podcast, and we appreciate your time sharing and inspiring others to chase their dreams. 
Um, just one more time, how can folks find out how to order both Project Future and Four Decades of Magic? Well, Dean, it's been great to be here, and I'm, I'm looking forward to you all and your podcast and you get started because I think it's a, it's a market niche that has not been filled yet, and uh, I think uh, you bringing this podcast along is, is really something I'm going to follow because I, I love the angle you're taking. The best way to reach um, or to find about Project Future or Four Decades of Magic or the other Disney books that um, we've published is go to i 4 Publishing, which is kind of a play off one of the dummy corporations which Disney set up in Florida, which was the I4 Corporation. Um, obviously, it was alluding to Interstate 4, but the way it's spelled is A Y E F O U R. So go to www.ayefourpublishing.com, I4publishing.com, and you can get all the materials and all the books and see some free previews there. Great. All right. Well, we look forward to uh, reading your new book and uh, appreciate the time. Thanks again, Chad. All right. Thanks, Dean. Next time on The Dreamer's Moment. As it started to grow even more, I was just astounded. Like, okay, here's 1,100, now 12, now 13, 14, 15. And I thought, man, I think we're going to hit 2,000. The growth was just exponential at that point. Uh, And when we hit 2,000, at that point, I was just, I don't know how big this is going to go. This is amazing. The Dreamer's Moment is part of the Life Podcast Network, a group of family-friendly podcasts bringing a positive message of hope and inspiration. Find us at lifepodcast.net.